Hebrews, verse by verse, the new and living way. This is part five. I thought a long time about the title for this message, and here's what I came up with. Sometimes you must preach warning, or the power of grace disappears. Sometimes you must preach warning, or the power of grace disappears. The text is Hebrews chapter 2, the first four verses, and you can't help but notice immediately there's a change of tone from the end of chapter 1. Of course, the chapter divisions aren't there in, in the original letter to the Hebrews, but it does help us in terms of our study together. So where we would say chapter 2, verse 1, sometimes you must preach warning or the power of grace disappears. Hebrews 2, 1 to 4. Therefore, we must pay, and here are the important words, much closer attention, much closer attention to what we have heard. I want to talk about that. Here's the danger, lest we drift, drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. We have a passage on that's law. We're not under law now. We're under grace. And that's not where he goes. It's a strange text. Since the message declares by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we, so he's not dealing with law people, he's dealing with grace people, how shall we escape if we, if we neglect, there's the verb, such a great salvation? It was first declared by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Just to set this up a bit, this is... This is the first of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. So there's 2, 1 to 4 that I just read. There's chapter 3, verse 7 to chapter 4, 13. That's the second warning passage. Then 5, 12, 5, 11 to 6, 12. That's the third. Hebrews 10, 19 to 39. That's the fourth. Hebrews 12, 14 to 29. That's the fifth. Five warning passages. Now... That these warnings are repeated so frequently is striking, but it's not the most significant factor. What is even more striking, and I think important to note, is that each warning, each of the five, is very strategically placed. If you were to sit down and read the book right through, which is a good idea, you can do it in 20 minutes. Each warning passage... It's not just the same warning repeated. Each warning passage is strategically placed, usually right in the very center of the writer's expositions of the greatness of grace through the redemptive priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, freely, graciously, on our behalf. It's right in the middle of those sections where he talks the most about grace that he slices in with these warning passages while magnifying grace. That's the significant thing. So in other words, these warnings are intentionally uh, coupled, married, to the passages magnifying divine grace freely bestowed through the shed blood 
and in our writer's emphasis, the heavenly intercession of our high priest, God the Son. And so I think we're meant to learn something important. Here's what we're meant to learn. Warnings are not contradictory to grace. Warnings are protective of grace. So so the warnings are set in the middle of the strongest grace passages because, because warnings are the conduit through which grace continually is made effective. Just like the wires in your house are the conduit through which electricity turns on your lights. No wires, no lights. No warnings, no grace. Let me say it again. If you de-emphasize the warning passages from Hebrews, or for that matter, if you de-emphasize the warning passages from the New Testament letters, you don't get more grace. As, as, if, as if the place vacated by warning just fills up with more grace. No, not at all. It doesn't work that way. Take away the warning sermons, and you don't get more grace, you get less Or as the writer of Hebrews says, you drift from grace completely if you downplay these these warnings. I I think the church badly needs the balanced teaching of the letter to the Hebrews for this reason. We need it so we don't confuse the reception of divine grace. We don't confuse that with mere peace of mind and serenity. Obviously, if the warning passages of Scripture are never studied, if the passages where sin is exposed, judgment is talked about, If God's love is just proclaimed in mere sort of Santa-like, stripped of holy character, if his divine touch is relished as nothing but soothing, well, obviously, we're going to feel, all of us, a lot more relaxed and comforted when we go to church. If we never hear the warnings if we never hear the caution, if we never hear the prohibition, if we never hear anything countercultural to the standards of righteousness held by our world, we will feel serene in the house of the Lord. There's a problem. Divine grace and human serenity are not the same thing. A person has not necessarily magnified divine grace just because he's no longer challenged about holiness, death to self, repentance from sin. So so feeling relaxed on a Sunday morning in church isn't automatically the fruit of magnifying divine grace. It could be just a comfortable chair. Why are you stressing this, Pastor Don? I'm stressing it because every now and then I talk to someone who will say something like this. She'll come up to me and say, uh, so-and-so has moved from one church to another with the explanation that they just are a person of grace theology. 
She's seeking a more grace-filled message. She doesn't want to hear so much about wrath or sin or judgment. Or I'm, I'm a grace Christian, Pastor Don. I hear stuff like that. And then you start to study the book like Hebrews. And you put aside all the slogans, all the trends, and you just, you just kind of let its message unfold as the verses roll off the page. Hebrews is a grace epistle, like very few in the New Testament. Its message is more centered on the effective, freely given, grace-filled, redemptive, priestly ministry of Jesus than any other letter in the New Testament. And yet, its author repeatedly, five times, protects and explains and exalts that grace with as much warning as promise. What's going on here? Was he out of line? Is the writer of Hebrews legalistic? I don't think so. Here's what I think is happening. I don't mean just here. I mean in the church at large, the North American church. Just perhaps we're, we're starting to confuse the, the ordering up of how we want to hear the gospel... We're confusing that with the way we order our beverages at Starbucks. Yes, I'll have a double decaf, low-fat mochaccino with a touch of Madagascar cinnamon. Not too sweet, please. Just a half shot of espresso. Could you make it extra hot? Thank you very much. And unfortunately, our text won't allow for such self-centered doctrinal screening. You don't get to do that with the Bible. Doctrines can't be special ordered. We'll just have to take the inspired text as we find it. We'll just have to take this verse, after that verse, after that verse, after that verse. Maybe the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing. Point number one. Our text today reveals the writer's intention in the many quotations presenting the greatness of Christ in the first chapter. We won't go back, obviously, and review all of that. But our text starts with that word. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now, now, if we didn't have today's text, we we might be left sort of wondering what all those Old Testament quotes... Remember, last week and the week before, all those Old Testament quotes in the first chapter, we might have wondered what they were all there for. Now, we know. We must pay much closer attention. And that word, closer is a comparison word, closer. Pay closer attention. And we all want to say, well, closer than what? To what is the writer comparing the attention we churchgoers need to give to gospel teaching? Closer than what? Well, we know we're being sent back to the first chapter for the answer to those questions because because of this. Our thoughts are being pointed backwards. 
And that whole first chapter, and actually the last half of the second when we get to it, but that whole first chapter is just a lingering study comparing the lesser glory of the law and the prophets, the old covenant. It's comparing that with the vastly greater glory of Christ. That's what the whole chapter does. And so our writer's point is, in our text today, 2-1, the attention we apply to proper gospel hearing right now. Right now. The attention we apply to proper gospel hearing must be, must be greater than any Old Testament prophet or priest ever gave to the law. That's what he's saying. So, we know grace is not about relaxation. Pay much closer attention. When I talk about paying something, immediately it's, it's, it's kind of a monetary word, isn't it? You pay a bill. You pay off a debt. But it's, it's, it's this idea of, of cost. I owe you $100. I have $105 in my wallet. I give you the $100. That means I just got five left. Because it, I, I have to pay. So he's saying, you had, you had Moses and the law, Mount Sinai, and you have, and you have all the prophets pointing to the, the nation Israel, both before and after the split, to their unrighteousness and the importance of the law and the temple and the sacrifices, and they're telling the people to listen and what happens if they don't, and God judges them when they don't. He says, you see all of that? That's what I was talking about in chapter 1 of the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, when we're talking about Jesus and the gospel, what I'm saying is much closer attention than they ever gave. Seems strange. There's a very important reason We have to be told it is much harder to attend to grace seriously than law seriously. It's not easier. It's harder. And there's a very important reason for that that is frequently missed. The law, it threatens when it's ignored. And most Christians sitting right now in this service don't think that grace ever threatens. I mean, that's, that's what makes grace, grace. It lands so much more sweetly, doesn't it, than law. That's why we sing, amazing grace, how sweet. It's just sweet. Grace never feels like it pinches or prods. Law, law warns. Grace, well, grace just promises. And, and that sweet, light landing of grace on our ears, it creates a huge problem, and our text won't let us skirt around it. So at least to the second point. Because grace lands on our minds so sweetly, we can easily drift 
away from its call to holiness and ongoing transforming momentum. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Lest we, lest we drift away from it. There's no mistaking our writer's concern here. It's, it is easy to drift away from the, the, the forward pull, the dynamic of grace, all the while justifying such mental drifting as though we were simply avoiding legalism and the law. Pastor Don, we just want, we're just, we're just looking for a grace teaching. It is easy. It is easy. That's why we're told we must give closer attention to grace than anyone gave to law. Underscore that. You don't just feel grace. You, you, you pay attention to it. It's easy to drift from grace because we convince ourselves grace will never wrap us on the knuckles like law would. And once, and once Christians confuse grace with serenity... That drifting from the cutting edge of the gospel, it almost feels righteous. We can kid ourselves into believing that this effortless slouching into grace is actually biblical, pleasing to God somehow. I know Christian people who are proud of the fact that they go to a church that no longer bothers them about their sin. That's how drifting gets justified and habitual. But it isn't grace. It's just a serene, relaxed, spiritual numbness. Point number three. The fruit of grace is an increased seriousness in the disciplined pursuit of holiness. You can spot grace at work. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So grace reduces inattentiveness. Say that with me. Grace reduces inattentiveness. I don't do that all that often, but once in a while just saying something helps you to get the point. In case I muddy it up later on, you'll, you'll remember that. Grace reduces inattentiveness. What these Hebrew believers had heard was the superior revelation from God in the Christ, the Messiah, God the Son. They had heard of Christ's infinite superiority over the prophets and the angels. We took all those quotes. So now, now that they've heard this, what? What next? We've heard it, we've believed it. Is it like that server in the restaurant who just puts your food on the table and then says, enjoy, as he walks away? Apparently not. Our text says that greater revelation demands greater attention. So grace in, 
increases attention. It reduces relaxation. It's the polar opposite of mental and moral drifting. If there was any previous drifting from the law of God, grace will drive that carelessness out of my heart. That's how grace works. That's the whole point. Divine grace requires much closer attention to one. Much closer attention than the law ever did. Fortunately, the Bible doesn't just spit this out as some unexplained point of theology. We see examples of this. It's so important that we, it's not left as a bare statement. This is Paul. And it's a passage about grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. It's all grace, Paul says. I'm, I'm nothing without grace. I tried the role of the Pharisee. Philippians, he'll say, according to, according to the keeping of the law, he says, I was blameless. That's, that's quite a statement. Perfect. To the point of the letter of the law. Didn't get me anywhere. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace, he's still talking about it. His grace toward me was not in vain. Okay, what, what does that mean? So apparently, apparently grace can become vain, empty, slight, marginal, powerless. His grace, that's God's grace, toward me was not in vain. On the contrary... Does that sound like grace to you? It sounds like works, doesn't it? I, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the... Here it is again. The grace of God. Behold the DNA of divine grace. This, this is Paul holding at bay the kind of drifting described in our Hebrews text. This is Paul preventing... Vain grace, as he called it. His grace toward me was not in vain. No, this is not Paul working for his salvation. That's not it at all. This is Paul attending to, giving attention to, manifesting the pulling power of divine grace in his heart. What does grace do? Well, it increases attention. It increases diligence. Point number four. This is an important point to me. The power of grace, God's grace in my life as a believer, is not automatically sustained simply because I don't renounce it. You see it in Hebrews 2.1. I've read this verse about eight times in this sermon. I want you to see it one more time. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So it's, it's much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And I want to just flag one obvious thing here. The writer is not pleading with us to not do something bad. Let me explain. He's not telling us, don't deny the gospel. He's not telling us, don't belittle the gospel. He's not even telling us, 
Don't ignore the gospel. So the point is, I can't comfort myself simply because I have not done any of those bad things. And and what's more important to note is, I have not protected my heart simply because I've not done any of those terrible things. So in other words, this is not a text telling us what we shouldn't do. It's telling us what we must do. See? It's not a prohibition in the text. It's an exhortation. It's a command. The text isn't telling us what we shouldn't do. It's telling us what we must do. It's not a negative. It's a positive. The text is calling us to do something. Not to avoid something, but to do something. So I'm learning the effects of the gospel, gospel grace. They need to be cherished in order to be preserved. They must be treasured in order to be powerful. They they call out for more attention, not less attention. It's the summons of grace to, to give divine things their proper worth. And when told, Don... I'm being told in this text that that doesn't happen just, just because I pastor a church. It doesn't happen to you because you're on the board, or you sing in the choir, or you've been to college and seminary, or you're a teacher, or you're a Bible study leader. That's not happening automatically in anybody. There are some deep... There are some deep principles of the Christian life that don't transfer very well from one generation to the next. By that I mean there are some truths of the Christian life that have to be relearned by each generation of Christians. There's no way of merely telling the next generation about them. You don't have to be a genius to look around this church and see my generation and then see the generation under them and recognize that the generation under mine are abandoning the faith in large numbers. Why is that happening? Because there are some principles of the Christian life that don't transfer well from one generation to the next. There's no way of merely telling the next generation about them. This is one of those truths. The the spiritual momentum of the previous generation won't sustain life in the following generation. Even if some of the outward habits of the previous generation are continued, go to church, crack my Bible open once in a while, say grace before a meal, try not to watch porn on the internet... Even if some of the outward habits of the previous generation are continued, each following generation will have to learn what it is to pay closer attention to what they have heard. They have to do that for themselves. You can't tell them about that. Even if some of the outward habits can be passed along Closer attention. Closer attention. 
the previous generation can't prevent drifting in the following generation. They have to learn that. So the obvious question then, as we wrap up, there's an obvious question that comes out of all of this. How do we give much closer attention to what we have heard? That's the issue, right? If you don't give much closer attention, not just attention, much closer attention. If you don't do that, you're going to drift. You'll drift away from what you've heard. So how do we do that? Here we are. We're a church in Newmarket. How do we do this? How do we give much closer attention to what we have heard? Point number five, paying closer attention, I put that in quotes because it's right from the text, paying closer attention to grace is not the same as enjoying the sound of grace. There are examples in the scriptures of people who enjoyed hearing what God had to say. In fact, they celebrated it without paying close attention to it. This is a great text. There's, there's several like this. Let me just read Ezekiel 33, 30 to 32. God speaks to the prophet, and he's got this problem with the way the people are responding to the prophet's message. And the problem isn't that they don't like listening to the prophet. They love listening to Ezekiel. Listen. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you in the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come. Hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. Let's go hear Ezekiel. He's got hot stuff. 31. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you have to say, but they won't do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain, money. Behold, and this is it, You are to them like one who sings lustful songs. Now, this doesn't mean uh, dirty songs. Lustful songs with a beautiful voice plays well on an instrument. They'll hear what you say. They won't do it. So these are the people who, who hear what the prophet has to say. In fact, they like hearing the prophet. They like hearing him like you enjoy the music you program on your smartphone or your iPad, you pick the songs you like, you're jogging, you got the wireless earphones and you're just, you're just, and it just, and it feels good. Isn't that what music does? You put something on and music, your taste, but I have my taste, I like, I like classical music, I like some jazz, you put it on at the end of the day, you sit in your chair and just go, oh. People that like hearing about grace. The words of the prophet are like music to their ears. I take that to mean the prophet's words make them feel comfortable, good. They encourage themselves in the prophet's words. They delight in the prophet's words, but they don't pay close attention to his words. They thought the point of God's words was the feeling that God's word brought to their hearts. 
And if we ever think the feelings we get from God's words are the point of them, we will gradually drift from salvation. That's the whole point of our text in Hebrews. Last point, point number six. Paying much closer attention to what we have first heard means being disciplined in the corporate life of the local church. Here he goes. Pastor Don's going to chew us out and tell us we're not going to church enough. That's what pastors do. We'll sit here, we'll just tolerate him for the next ten minutes. Humor the man. Just pretend like you're looking at him and listening to him. Hebrews 2, 2 to 4. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, we looked at that. There's a, a strong tradition, you'll see it in different texts, of angels being involved in the giving of the law. That's what he's referring to. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. And it, Read your Old Testament. Retribution all over the place for people who break the law. How shall we escape? But we're grace people. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first declared, declared first by the Lord. That's important. And it was attested to us by those who heard. I want to talk about those two phrases. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders, various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his, his will. Now, there's a lot in those verses, but I just want to put a marker around those words. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Now, understand what's being said there. What this writer of Hebrews is saying is, he's saying that neither he or she, neither the author of the book of Hebrews, nor the listeners to the book of Hebrews, had heard the liberating gospel truth directly from the lips of Jesus. That's what he's saying. None of us got this from Jesus. We are later than that. Jesus is ascended. He's gone. They all depended on the sure declaration of truth by those who had listened. It was attested to us by those who, see, heard. So the message, and more importantly the power of that message, is in no way diminished in the hands of the church than it was from the physical lips of Jesus. That's what he's saying. It's quite striking. And, and it's this church message that the writer urges upon our attention, much closer attention with the passing of time. He says, I didn't hear this just from, right from Jesus, and the people who listen to my text as it's read, they didn't hear it from Jesus, but it's still the same gospel with the same grace as though you were standing there in front of Jesus, though he's ascended already. That this isn't diminished because it's 2017. 
that, that you shouldn't think I don't have to give quite as much attention to it from Pastor Don as if Jesus were standing here. I would really listen to him. That, that's what he's talking about here. And he says that the neglect. Remember, neglect is the danger. How shall we escape if we neglect? Verse 3. Now, remember what we're talking about. How do we pay much closer attention? How do we do it? Because these truths don't transfer easily from generation to generation. The great danger of neglect is particularly menacing because by its nature, neglect is almost always undetected. How shall, how shall we prevent this great unthinking movement from the gospel? How shall we prevent it? The writer has no magic wand. It's not a trick. He's going to tell us that we keep truth alive in each other's hearts. We hear carefully. We live accountably with each other in Christ. You can't help but noticing the we words in our text. We must pay much closer attention. What we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape? It was attested to us. This, this writer of Hebrews, he can't even think of himself apart from the community. He can't identify himself as a separate entity at all. The community is the antidote. The community provides anti-drift. The community helps focus our attention. The body of Christ, when functioning at its best, is designed to keep you and me from knowing spiritual things generally. The body of Christ at its best helps its members to know about how to go about considering gospel truths more specifically and more diligently than they might do on their own. No, you don't earn your way to heaven because you don't go to Costco Sunday night, but you're in church. But I'll tell you this, you will have an easier time focusing on the gospel here than you will at Costco tonight. Or the Super Bowl. What, what do you think is going to rivet your attention more on Christ? Coming here, praying with Christians, studying the word, or watching football? It's a serious question. What do you think would? Gee, Pastor Dunn, that's really a hard question. <laughs> we are here to prompt each other. Refuse to drift. Don't neglect. It's not denying, right? He's not talking about denying, opposing. He's talking about neglecting. Other stuff. He's talking about drifting. Fight neglect like you would fight cancer. You never fight it without considering it deeply. You ever been with a friend or someone who had cancer or has cancer? Let me tell you what. 
It's never off their mind. This is, this is what the body of Christ is for. Stay close. Grace demands much more attention than law. Because grace doesn't look like it demands anything. And therein is the danger. Let's pray.